Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. We've been studying 1 Peter during my first six months here in the pulpit. And this morning we come to the final passage. I'm going to actually pick up the reading with a couple of verses we looked at last week. We'll start in verse 6. And then I'll read through the end of the chapter. Please give your attention to God's holy and errant word. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. There is absolutely no doubt that the greatest comic strip in the history of mankind is Calvin and Hobbes. (laughs) And if you've lived under a rock and have not encountered Calvin and Hobbes, just briefly, it's about a little boy and his imaginary tiger. And a recurring recurring storyline in the Calvin and Hobbes strips is about the monsters that live under Calvin's bed. And in one of those strips, one night, Calvin and Hobbes are lying in bed and trying to go to sleep. And Calvin says to his friend Hobbes, Mom wants me to try an experiment tonight. She says that the monsters under my bed need for me to think about them in order to exist. Her theory is that if I just don't think about them, they'll go away. A little later, you see Calvin and Hobbes laying there in bed, wide-eyed, staring at the ceiling. And Hobbes says, Of course, that idea of being dragged under the bed and devoured by monsters has a way of gripping the mind. (laughs) I thought of that strip this week as I began to study this passage from God's Word. Peter gives us here an ominous warning as he ends this letter that we've been studying together. He says, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Do you believe that? Do you live as though you believe that? watching an interview with the atheist author Richard Dawkins recently. 
He was asked about people who believe in a devil. And he said, I quote, I am astonished that anybody in the 21st century can believe in that pre-medieval superstition. Probably summarizes the perspective of many people that you deal with day in and day out. I guess I'm here this morning to say that it doesn't really matter whether you believe in a real personal devil or not. It may not be popular to say so in this still somewhat postmodern culture, but the existence of the devil doesn't depend upon our belief in it. Matter of fact, the devil prefers to work undercover. He prefers either one of two things. He prefers either that we scoff at his existence or that we believe silly things about his existence, like that he has pointy ears and horns and a pointy tail and is red and goes around poking people, or that we can manipulate him somehow with voodoo dolls and incantations. As Peter concludes this letter, his desire is to kind of pull back the curtains of visible reality. To say to his readers, there is a spiritual reality out there that you can't touch, you can't taste, you can't feel, you can't hear it, but it's there. And it's just as real as the physical reality. And in that reality... There is a fearsome being that you need to be aware of. Remember that he's writing to Christians in the first century that were being persecuted for their faith in Christ. Every day they're putting their jobs on the line, they're putting their possessions on the line, they're putting their families on the line, and they're putting their own lives on the line, suffering for the name of Christ and the gospel. And what he wants these Christians that were huddling together in small house churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, as they're huddling in their small groups, in their small churches, he wants them to understand that no matter what it may look like to physical eyes, in the spiritual reality, they are on the front lines of a spiritual war. They are in the trenches. And there is a real enemy out there. And what's interesting to me is that Peter shares this not to get them trembling, not to get them running scared, but to encourage them as he ends his letter. He's sending them out on a high note here, talking about the devil. Well, who is the devil according to Peter? It's interesting, Peter refers to him in three ways here. First of all, he calls the devil our adversary, verse 8. our opponent, or as Jesus put it, our enemy. If you go back to the beginning of God's Word, He tells us there something that we can only know because God's Word reveals it, is that the devil originally was an angel created by God, shared in all the glories of heaven. But he rebelled against God and was cast out of heaven, and with him he took an innumerable amount of Angels, fallen angels, those that we now call the beings that we now call demons. 
This is what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So God, the creator of all things, has told us that there is a real, personal, intelligent, powerful being out there in that spiritual realm. But he is a created being. He's not equal in power and authority to to God. He's just a powerful and high-ranking angel. But with him, he has legions of loyal subjects, soldiers in the spiritual war. And the scriptures also tell us that not only does he control an army of demons in the spiritual realm, but he also, in some sense, is also in control of physical authorities, real earthly authorities. When he came to tempt Jesus, he claimed that he owned the kingdoms of the world. Unless you think that that's just a lie, that Satan is known to lie, unless you think it's only a lie, Jesus himself called Satan the ruler of this world in John 12:31. Paul, the apostle Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And the apostle John says simply that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now we'll see in a moment that that's not an ultimate authority, but there is a very real sense in which those powers, authorities, institutions, organizations that do not recognize the authority of God the Father and of Jesus Christ, His only Son, those institutions' authority, to some degree or another, are under the control of this evil, dark, fallen angel who rules legions of other angels, the one called Satan. I think in one sense we kind of got a taste of what this kind of enemy, what this kind of adversary, what this kind of, of opposition is like. We're used to two, two countries going to battle, and I still, when I think of a war, I still have in my mind kind of like back at the time of the Revolution, American Revolutionary War, you have two lines of soldiers lining up against each other and firing away. But Satan doesn't employ his troops that way. I think a kind of an example of of a satanic type of warfare was Osama bin Laden, Al-Qaeda. You think about it, a leader with great resources over armies of loyal subjects and rebels, but scattered throughout. And I think think in one sense, especially since 9-11, one of the things most unnerving about the war on terrorism is that Here was this unseen leader with these unseen armies who might be all around us and it was just not what we're used to in doing warfare. But that's much more what it's like in the spiritual realm. Satan and his legions of soldiers are all around in the spiritual realm. That's what God's Word tells us. That's our adversary. That's our enemy. Secondly, Peter calls him the accuser. You may not see that in the English, but that's what the word the devil means. It's not a name. It's not a proper name like we think of names. It's a title. It means the accuser or, more appropriately, the malicious accuser or the slanderer. 
That's what the word devil in the original Greek means. And so you think of Job, who was attacked by Satan. And Satan says to God, Does Job fear God for no reason? Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. He was accusing Job. In Zechariah chapter 3, you may remember that prophecy where the prophet Zechariah sees the high priest Joshua. And he sees Joshua in the courtroom of God's justice. And there's the high priest representing God's people wearing dirty, filthy, disgusting robes. And it says in that vision that the prophet Zechariah saw, in that vision it says that Satan was there at his right hand, what? To accuse him. To point out his guilt, his shame, his filthiness before a holy God. You see, you need to understand that. The scriptures don't tell us a lot about Satan, don't tell us a lot about the spiritual realm. I think there's meant to be a limit on our exploration into what God has not revealed. But it does hint at his motivation. And when it calls him the accuser, understand that that's his goal, is to see you accused before God's throne of justice and to see you condemned because he is condemned. He wants you to share in his dark, rebellious kingdom. He wants to see you destroyed. He's your enemy. And when Satan tempts you to sin, it's because he wants to see you stand before God in your filth and guilt and shame and be condemned and be destroyed eternally. Do you remember that spiteful, jealous kid in third grade who used to always run and tell the teacher on you? As common and as trivial as that may be, it's diabolical. It's devilish. That desire to see others condemned, to see others punished, driven by jealousy. It's straight from the pits of hell. The third label that Peter gives to Satan is that he's like a roaring lion. I was kind of fascinated by this as I studied it this week. He's like a roaring lion. Satan is usually in Scripture represented by one of two symbols when you think of the animal kingdom. Either he's represented by a snake, as he was in the Garden of Eden, or he's represented by a dragon, which he often is portrayed as in the book of Revelation. This is the only place, interestingly, in all of Scripture that Satan is called a lion or is is compared to a lion. Now, in one sense, I wasn't surprised by that because I love the Psalms, and as you read through the Psalms, when it talks about the enemies of God or the enemies of God's people, it often compares them to lions in their raw, destructive power. But I think more so what Peter is thinking of here is that when you think of the image of a lion or the symbol of a lion, who do you normally think of? Jesus Christ. The book of Genesis says that Jesus Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the book of Revelation also calls him the lion of the tribe of Judah. It speaks to his power, his authority, his sovereignty, his glory. As C.S. Lewis portrayed so well in his novels, the great Aslan. And I think, why does Peter say that 
Satan is like a lion. I think it speaks to the fact that Satan is the ultimate antichrist. Satan has none of his own original authority, has none of his own original power, but he seeks to mimic that of the true Christ. He is a dark lion. He stands opposed to Christ in all that Christ stands for and all that Christ is seeking to accomplish. Satan, the dark lion, is a usurper. It says that as a lion, like a lion, he prowls around. That's what it says in the English. He prowls around seeking whom he might devour. The word prowls there tends to make us think of sneaky movements, you know, stealthiness. But that's not really interesting. When you look at it in the Greek language, in the original language, the word means to walk around, walk all over the place. And so it's not really, even though it's true that Satan is stealthy and works through deception, what that word is particularly pointing out is that he's very active. He's proactive. He's seeking you out. He's hunting you down, to be more precise. He, as Peter says, is seeking someone to devour. And that someone may be you. Can't help but think that as Peter is writing these words, it's very likely that there are already his Christian brothers and sisters that were being thrown to the lions in the Roman Colosseum. So you can imagine the weight of his words. Jesus called Satan a murderer from the beginning. Satan's desire is to destroy, to kill both physically and spiritually. He wants to kill your body while you're still in a state of rebellion against your Creator so that you'll be condemned with Him through all eternity. So that's just a brief picture. And Peter there, in using those terms, actually gives us a good little summary of what the Bible teaches us, God's Word tells us, about this unseen, powerful, spiritual being named Satan or the devil. He's there. He's stalking us. He's scheming against us. And he hates us and wants to destroy us. Okay, Peter, where's the encouragement in that? How are we to respond Well, look at what Peter says. I purposely went back and read verse 6 because that's the bridge between last week's passage and this week's passage. And he really begins this thought about preparing us for dealing with this powerful spiritual being by saying to us, humble yourself. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he might exalt you. Scripture hints at the fact Again, going to the motivation of Satan and his rebellion. Scripture hints at the fact that it was Satan's pride that led to him being cast out of heaven before the world was created. It was pride that made him the rebel that he is. And in light of that, it's interesting that when Paul is talking to Timothy about what the qualifications should be for leaders in the church of Jesus Christ, he says this when he's talking about qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3. He says, an elder must not be a recent convert. Why? Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Wow. The idea that if you are a leader in the church and you allow yourself to become filled with pride, 
you actually become devilish as a leader. And that's what led to the devil's fall. And so the implications is for all of us, whether you're a leader or not, is that don't go up against Satan unless you first humble yourself. Don't go up against Satan with the resources of your own wisdom. Don't go up against Satan with the resources of your own spirituality. Don't go up against Satan with the own, your resources, of your own, resources of your own knowledge of Scripture and wisdom. You must get on your knees. How many times has Peter tried to get this across to us? We need to live in dependence upon the Lord. And the way that we express dependence is through prayer. It is through prayer that the resources of our risen Lord Jesus Christ come into our lives. The second instruction that Peter gives is to be watchful. Look at verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. This is one of Peter's favorite exhortations. He's said this in three or four different ways as we've worked our way through this letter. He's calling us again to spiritual alertness. And remember, when we looked at this before, spiritual alertness means being in control of your passions, your lusts, not allowing your lusts to control you, but to be in control of them through the Holy Spirit so that you are not caught up in sin, so that you're not caught up in the things of this world, so that you might be clear-minded, and that's the other side of it, is that you be in the Word of God, that you be in prayer and in the Word of God, so that your thinking is biblical, so that you are seeing reality clearly by faith. And since you cannot see the spiritual realm with your physical eyes, you must see the spiritual realm by faith, and it is the Word of God that informs your faith. And so that's what Peter is saying when he says, be watchful, be alert, be self-controlled, be sober-minded. Physical or spiritual intoxication is what makes us vulnerable to the deceptions of Satan. And that's exactly what he desires to do. His greatest weapon against us is deception. As he said to Eve, did God really say? He loves to take the truth of God's Word, a nugget of it, and twist it and distort it and put it in a different context and use it against us to deceive us. As as Jesus says in John 8, the devil is a liar and the father of lies. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So be alert. Be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. Be clear-headed. Think biblically. And control your passions by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, we're not only to humble ourselves, we're not only to be watchful and alert, but we are to resist him. Verse 9, resist the devil firm in your faith. You know, we don't really need to be on the offense against Satan. We don't need to be. Don't worry, he's going to come to you. Scripture, when it talks about us reacting to Satan's attacks... It tends to speak in defensive mode, as Peter does here. Resist him, standing firm. Hold your ground. And what is that ground? What are we holding on to? What's keeping us solid and secure as Satan attacks? Well, literally, it says in the Greek, stay firm or be firm in the faith. Not your faith. It's the word your is not there. It's in the faith. And most commentators agree that he's talking about the faith handed down from the apostles. The truth of God's Word. The Gospel. Stand firm in the faith. 
And as you realize that, what immediately comes to my mind is that great vision from Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12, you ever want to take a peek behind the curtain and see what is going on in the spiritual realm between the forces of heaven and the spiritual war and the forces of darkness? Go to Revelation 12, read that vision, and there what you'll see is that there is a woman who represents the church being attacked by this massive dragon. And the dragon is particularly attacking the woman in order that he might get at the child born of the woman, which represents Jesus Christ. And he is attacking Christ, but he is unsuccessful in destroying Christ, the child. And the child, it says, is caught up to his throne in heaven. Saying that the death and resurrection of Christ has happened. He has ascended to the right hand of heaven. Now, have, that having happened, look at what that, that prophetic vision says happens next. This is a scene in heaven and the war between the forces of heaven and the, and the dark forces. And it says in verse 10, And I heard a loud voice, this is uh, Revelation 12, verse 10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. He has been cast down. When the Son was caught up to His throne in heaven after His death and resurrection, Satan was cast down. The accuser has been silenced. He was conquered by the blood of the Lamb and the word of the church's testimony. Now Jesus said Himself that when He came and He preached the Gospel and He was given the power to cast out demons... He said, if I'm able to cast out demons by the power of God, then understand this. That means that the kingdom of God has come and the strong man, Satan, has been bound. And when the apostles came back from their first missions trip and they're rejoicing that not only had they been able to preach the kingdom of God, but they had also been able to cast out demons. Jesus says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. There he's not referring primarily to the original fall before the creation. He's talking about the fall that happened when Christ came the first time. He died for our sins, was raised from the dead, and ascended to the right hand of God in heaven. That's why Jesus says in John 12, just before he goes to the cross, in John 12, 31, he says, Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. That is the faith. That Peter's talking about. Stand firm in the faith. The faith in what Christ has done. His death for your sins. His resurrection and His ascension. He's seated on the throne of God in heaven. Stand firm in that faith. And resist the devil. You don't need to fear the devil. You don't need to tremble. He is defeated. He is bound. He is cast out. Yes, he's still active, but he's on Christ's leash. And he can only go so far as Christ will allow him. The blood of the Lamb, the cross of Jesus Christ, takes away every shred of basis for a guilty, a guilty sentence against you before the throne of God. Satan has nothing to accuse you of if you stand covered in the blood of Christ if he died for your sins and was raised again for your justification. Let me take you back to that 
vision of Zechariah. Remember, he was the high priest in his dirty garments, was representing God's people before a holy God. And Satan is standing in his right hand accusing him. Let me read to you the rest of that vision. Zechariah 3, verse 2, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. By faith in Christ, our filth, our shame, our sin, our guilt before a holy God is taken away, And by faith we are given the righteousness of Christ. We stand before him clean and forgiven. Satan has nothing to accuse us of. Peter says, resist him. Stand firm in the faith of what Christ has done. And James adds a promise. James says in James 4 verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's power. It's in your hands because of what Christ has done. When Satan attacks you, Christ, the risen Christ, seated on the throne in heaven, stands behind you. As Stephen was stoned and was dying, what did he see? Christ at the right hand of the Father. Stand firm in the faith and rest in his promises. That's the last thing that Peter tells us. The promise that the devil will flee, but also many more promises than that. Verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, remember he's talking to persecuted Christians here. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He, Satan is on Christ's leash. He will allow him to attack for his purposes to try you, to refine you, all the purposes of the tests and trials that Peter talked about in chapter 1. Because his intent is to make you as good as new. To make you over into the image of Christ. That's why Peter said, why Jesus said to Peter, remember, before he went to the cross, he said to Peter, he said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you. Satan has asked to devour you. Is what he's saying. Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And there, when you suffer the attacks of Satan, whether it's an attack of temptation, attack of physical suffering, attack of relationship suffering, whatever the attack, what form it takes, understand that there's always two purposes behind that attack. Satan's purpose is to sift you that he might destroy you. God allows that sifting in order to purify us, to make us like Christ, to teach us dependence, to purge away the pride so that we might be useful in his kingdom and that we might draw close to him. You know, Paul talked about the thorn in his flesh. And in 2 Corinthians 12, he says that God allowed Satan to afflict him with a thorn in the flesh so that he may not become prideful. And through that suffering, Paul learned that when he is weak, then he is strong because he stands firm in the faith of a risen Lord and Savior. We have conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. 
I don't know if you ever had the chance to see the uh, miniseries on television a number of years ago called Band of Brothers. But in that, there was one scene that really struck me. A uh, young private, in his fear, had, when the, a big battle came, he hid in his trench and didn't go out and fight. And so his lieutenant comes to him and on the eve of another great battle. He comes to him, and this young private is feeling like he can't do this. He, he ran away the first time. He can't do it. And so the lieutenant says this to him. And listen carefully to the quote. We're all scared. You hid in that ditch because you think that there's still hope. But the only hope you have is to accept the fact that you're already dead. And the sooner you accept that, the sooner you are able to function as a soldier is supposed to function. Without mercy, without compassion, without remorse, all war depends upon it. As I listened to that advice, I thought, you know what? If you're in the battle, the spiritual battle for the kingdom of Christ, it's exactly the opposite, isn't it? Christ says, you're already alive. You're already restored. You're already secure in heaven because of what Christ has done for you. You've already conquered through the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony. Therefore, stand firm in the faith in the risen Christ and go to battle, but do it with mercy And do it with compassion because of what Christ has done for you. The devil is real. So humble yourself. Be alert. Resist him standing firm in the faith and rest in God's promises. I'll close with this promise that Paul gives at the end of the book of Romans, a book that's all about the gospel and the glorified Christ. And it ends this way. It says, Be wise as to what is good, and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray. Father, we now come to the table of the Lord, and there we celebrate this great victory, Lord, as you look at our hearts. May you see celebration based in faith, in the death and resurrection of our great Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.